um, we've been going together to a man-to-man -to -man conference for probably 15 years now and uh, always enjoy what he has to say there and uh, gotten to be pretty good friends through that. And um, I saw when he was, um, I hadn't been on the host committee in quite a few years, and I saw he was going to be part of the speaking, speakers here. I thought, you know, it'd be great, man. Maybe I could do, maybe I could host him. Seemed like a good idea then, anyway. <laughs> but I've heard him quite a few times. I know he's got a great story. He does a lot for corrections. I hope he gets into some of that, and I'll give you Harold. Hello, Kentucky. My name is Harold. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, it's great to be here and be sober. My sobriety date is April the 7th, 1987. My home group in St. Louis, Missouri is AA on the Rocks <laughs> on Wednesday nights. So if you ever come to the Lou, come to St. Louis uh, on Wednesday in the Shaw neighborhood. There's some, uh, there's some homies right there. And, uh, and uh, we'd love for you to come to the to the rocks if you get a hold of me early enough we will put you to work i can promise you there's people here i put to work sitting right here right now it's it's great to be here i have a lot of friends here friends from all over most of the speakers i know and uh and know well and uh and but i just have a lot of friends in kentucky and my grand sponsors from kentucky at this point in time and there's just, one of my favorite old timers on the planet is here tonight from louisville and on and on and on and on and so i this is like being home away from home for me and so it's really a privilege to be here. I had the privilege to speak at your state conference some years ago. And a couple of stories that came out that I remember. I remember on Sunday morning, they came out and they auctioned off the banner and the plants. I had never been to a conference where they auctioned off. <laughs> and they said, we're going to auction off the banner. And I said, I'm looking at everybody like, who's going to buy the banner? <laughs> and they said, well, we'll start out $75. And right away, man, and I think it sold for $150. Bucks. Blew my mind. So... Hats off to Kentucky. If you can sell a van for $150. I think they even sold a few newcomers, right? So if you come up and get that book to, to, this weekend or tomorrow night, that book they're talking about being signed, be careful. You know, they might be watching. But, uh, the other story I have, the last time I came here, I had a sponsee. His, his name was George. He's in Wisconsin now. And about two weeks before I came to the, stuck, the state conference, George called me for sponsorship. And he says, he's been a sober about 10 years. He said, you know, I'm, I'm looking to make a change in sponsorship. Would you agree to sponsor me? I said, well, let's, uh, let's meet for coffee. And when you come, bring your A-step list. And when I'm working with guys that, that long, I always, that's what I always invite them to do because I know there's unfinished business there. I, I've heard a lot more fourth and fifth steps in my life than I ever heard eighth and ninth steps. So I knew there's unfinished business. So he brought what he had. And I said, you know, let's, let's start there. And uh, he says, well, most of this stuff I've done except for a couple, and the couple that I didn't do um, is because sponsorship said not to do them. Now, what I'm going to share this story with you, and it's not a template that says this is the way it goes for every scenario like this, so please don't take it that way and run it by your sponsor, and you need wise counsel and all those good things. But what I'm going to share with you is a powerful story of why we need sponsorship, but why the eighth and ninth step are so important in our life. And so George came and I said, what is the, what are you got? And he had a couple, but the only one I want to share with you is he says, I have, when I was a teenager living in Nashville, me and a couple other guys at a party, got drunk and got a little wild and got carried away with a girl and got in some trouble with this girl. We got charged with it. We got, we got sentenced from the Department of Corrections of Tennessee. We served our time. That's been many years ago, but she's on my list. And I said, well, have you made any attempt to try to reconcile this with this, this lady that's on your list? He goes, no, but I was sponsor said not to do it because you could cause more harm. I said, well, let me play the devil's advocate for a minute. How can you do more harm to her than what you've already done? Just asking you the question. And then, of course, the what ifs come out. This is part of the delusion of our illness. And he said, well, what if this? And I said, well, I can play back that same tape. I can say, what if this and what if that and what if this? I said, what if, it's, do you know who this person she is? Do you know her name? Yes, to all those questions. I said, what if we sent a certified letter with a receipt that if she got it, you know that she got it, and if she never talks to you again, you're, you're good. You've completed what you need to do with her. What do you think about the possibilities of that? He said, I'd be willing to do that. So I said, well, draft a letter and let's go through it. So we, you know, we edited it probably ten, seven, ten times before it said what it needed to say. And I said, all right, and I, so the Kentucky State Convention was that Friday coming up. So this is going into that week. And so he sent it on a Tuesday. 
He sent the letter, he, he overnighted it, um, and sent it certified mail. He called me Friday morning before we came to the Kentucky State Convention. He called me early, he says, uh, HL? I said, yep. He said, she called me. And of course, I played dumb. Who called you? He started laughing. He goes, you know who called me. I said, how'd it go? And he just broke down crying. And he said, I got to tell you that she called me and said, George, I got your letter, and it's an answer to prayer. I've been praying for all three of you guys all these years that, that God's will would come into your life, that you would find connection with God, and your life would change, and you were an answer to that prayer. You don't owe me anything, but this letter means everything. And I just want you to know that. And, and you don't have to call me anymore. We're good. But I'm, I'm glad to hear you're married, and you've got a family, and you're doing so well in life, and sobriety and recovery. And just keep doing that and keep pressing forward. And uh, that guy's never been the same since. Yeah. And that was right before I came here the last time. So who knows what's going to happen this time, you know? <laughs> but it's great to be here. Um, you know, when you come to these things, you got your story. And if you've been around a long time, you have so much to share. What do you share? I mean, we, of course, we share in a general way what it used to be like, what happened, what it's like now. But, like, really, what, what is it that I would want to leave you with? that's made a difference in how my life's turned out. Because if you're new to alcoholics, now I'm just out of show, how many people here are less than a year of sobriety, just for our other speakers to see? A lot of people here, so welcome, Diane. And so, you think about that, it says, what do you want to share? I mean, what are the big challenges, what are the big things that you've had to experience in your recovery to get the life where you have today? Because this is, friends, this is not just good news, this is the best news ever if you're powerless over alcohol. It truly is, it's been, it's my life today is just incredible. I would have never imagined any of it. So what is it I could share? And so I break that down to what I call the big delusions of alcoholism. And that's how I just kind of weave my story through that, to share these, these major points in my, my life, where I, what it used to be like, what happened, what it's like today. And so we'll go on that journey together. And, and the first delusion that really sets the stage for my life, and I believe all human beings, but definitely alcoholics, is that what I call the delusion of inequality. The delusion that I am not enough just how I am. The delusion of what you think of me paralyzes me. And that's the way it was my whole life, as far back as I can remember. I just never was right. Now, yet it's a story you hear a thousand different ways from this podium, but all of us have some version of that. And it drove my life. It absolutely controlled what I did, what I wore, what I said, how I listened, what music, it controlled everything I did especially early on in my life. It's the imposter narrative, if you would, that can still raise its voice today and try to tell me that I'm not enough, that I'm not worthy to be at the Kentucky State Convention. It can go on and on and on. It can disqualify me out of so many things, and it has. It's won out more times than I care to admit. But it's just delusional because it's not the truth. But it becomes my truth, and I listen to that voice. And how many voices are there? Well, put it this way, if I went to a counselor, they'd probably charge me a group rate. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot of noise going on here, right? Especially in the beginning. So this is how it started. I was raised by a single mom, the greatest mother on the planet, Mama Long, who passed away in 2015. I know there's a gentleman here tonight who just lost his mother last night. I know what that loss feels like. Um, my mom was married to two different alcoholics. The first one, she had a son and two daughters in St. Louis. And basically out of that marriage and all the insanity and all the chaos that went out of it, she basically lost her mind and she just left. Left. I mean, MIA, gone. Nobody knew where she was for 10 years. If she was dead, if she was alive, she was like on a milk carton, gone. And she resurfaced in Nevada, Missouri, on the western side of Missouri, right on the Kentucky-Oklahoma border, or on the Kansas-Oklahoma border in a, in a state mental hospital which is still there today and still very active today. My mom was just a broken human being. And she was there for quite a while before she got, or convinced him she was well enough, or she got well enough to get out, but she got out and she met another alcoholic who happened to be my dad. And I came out of that marriage, and somewhere between age two and three, she ran him off. And she turned her will and life over to the care of God as she understood God was through her Catholic roots, and she never wavered on that till the day she died. And she blossomed, matured, and grew, and over time grew into one of the most beautiful women you've ever seen. If you've been around long enough, you know that one of the most beautiful things on the planet is a woman who's walked with God for a long time. And there's a lot of those people here tonight. And uh, but she was that person. So she made that commitment. She ran him off, and she just said, this is it. She had no family. Her parents died young. I never knew any of my grandparents, didn't have any siblings. I was it. My mom was everything. She was one parent, all-inclusive, one person. 
And she said, we'll just figure it out. She's a divorced woman twice in the 60s, um, no education. That's a tough life for a woman at that stage of her life. But she persevered. You know, we lived in a beat up old house. We shared a bathroom with the lady next door until I was seven. And she gave me everything that she, a kid could ever want. She told me she loved me almost every day of my life. And this, this God, this higher power, this, this religion, this faith she had, she wanted me to have an experience with that. So she put me in a Catholic school. And from, from kindergarten till about fourth grade, I went to this parochial school in Nevada, Missouri. And, uh, and it shaped me. Um, I'm not one of these guys who get up here and say I'm a recovering Catholic or look at the scars on my hands from the rulers or the bald spots where they pulled out the hair in my head. I didn't have that experience. I don't remember all of it, but I know I liked it enough that I used to come home and play church sometimes, set up TV trays for the altar, you know, <laughs> get one a cool afghan and set it over it for, so it looked good, dump the fruit out of the fruit bowl, fill it full of potato chips for the Eucharist, right? Get some great Kool-Aid for the wine, get a towel out for a stole, and get a Bible out that I promise you we never read. Have a few guys come over, save a few suckers. It was a great day at the line. Okay? <laughs> the rock operas were out. Some of you are old enough to remember the rock operas. Tommy and Hare and Godspell and a Jesus Christ superstar. And that was a spiritual revelation. It was a, it was a revolution. We got a movie like that out this weekend. We got a revival right up the street. But we also got a revival right here in the state convention, right? And, and it's a revival. It's, it's like I was dead and I'm alive. You know, I was down and out. I was broken. I was sick. And now I'm standing. I'm walking. I was blind. I can, can see. I mean, all those illustrations to describe where we came from. But that's the power of this thing. That's how I started out. I was a great drummer. I started playing drums when I was young. Very gifted. It served me well in my life. I was a good ball player. Had I not found King Alcohol, I don't know if I've been good enough to play for the Cardinals, but I probably could have played for the Cubs. <laughs> We were friends a minute ago. I don't know what happened. <laughs> but that's how I started out. And then somewhere between eight and nine, my mom threw the bomb on me. And this is where that delusion of inequality, this is where that imposter narrative really started to rise to the surface and start to shape my life. She said, uh, we're going to move to St. Louis or outskirts of St. Louis. And I said, why? She says, because you've got a brother and two sisters you don't know about. And that was a huge blow to me. You know, I had no idea. This is part of my mother I didn't even know. And uh, so we, uh, we made this move. We moved to a, a suburb of St. Louis. It was a trailer park. We lived in the back where the, all the beat-up trailers were at, where they called everybody trailer trash. Couldn't go to the parochial school no more. Thrown in the public school system, a little town school, of maybe a hundred or two to thousands. And I, deferred, you know, I just didn't look like anybody else. I looked like a country kid from the Ozark Mountains. That's what I looked like. And this is the 70s. I mean, people were wearing bell-bottom pants and blue jeans were hip and long hair and Jesus freaks and all kinds of stuff going on. But this imposter marriage, it didn't take me long to change. I come home and said, Mom, I got to change. I got to get new clothes. So I started wearing the big bell-bottom pants. Some of you guys had those, right? And the brown suede boots with the red shoestrings in them. And I got the blue jean jacket, ripped the sleeves off, put a peace sign and a USA patch on it. Had a black t-shirt like Billy Jack. Remember Billy Jack? He was a badass. And I grew my hair long, and I took the thumbtack out of my kiss poster, and I pierced my ear. <laughs> and I made, it, I made myself a headband out of a piece of belt. And I had gap teeth, I had freckles, I looked like a freaked out Howdy Doody, if you remember that. <laughs> it's really pathetic. If you saw a picture, I only got a couple, but if you saw a picture, you're like, man. But this is this imposter narrative shaping my life, that I'll do whatever it takes to just chase my tail to try to be a part of something. My mom drank her whole life. My mom always had the cheapest beer in town till the day she died, even though when she had more resources as she got older and matured and blossomed in her career, she still, because of her roots, because of growing up in the Depression, because she was just cheap, always had the cheapest beer. And she always had to fit the old crow underneath this thing. And some of the old timers call that the dirty bird. So did I drink some of her booze, smoke some of her cigarettes, and do some of those things, and drink ultra wine, and do all that stuff? And the answer is yes to all that stuff. But I don't count any of that as my first real dance with King Alcohol, or my first real drink. I was a drummer. When I got to that town, I was invited into the stage bands, and a lot of bands, and I got invited to a lot of circles I had no business being in because I was just young. I wasn't even 12 yet. 
but I was acting. I was growing up on the streets. My mom was never around. I was 10 years old. I just came and go as I went. Dad was not in my life whatsoever. And so I, you know, I got in those circles and got introduced to all the stuff, the sex, the booze, the rock and roll, the drugs, all of it. And uh, somewhere between age 11 and 12, my buddy Steve, who was one of our bandmates, his parents were in Florida. He says, uh, why don't you come over, man? I'm going to have a party. My parents are going to be in Florida. It's going to be awesome. Well, I've never been to a party in my life of that nature. But I went to his house. And I went to his house. And he was behind the bar playing the bartender. And there was girls. And there was smoke. And there was dope. And it was awesome. But it was scary at the same time. And I walk up to the bar. I remember like it was yesterday. And he says, man, what are you drinking? And nobody ever asked me that in my entire life. I had no idea how to answer it. I said, I guess whatever you're drinking is what I'm drinking. And he made me a big glass of slow gin and Coke. And I went over and sat down. Yeah, you guys are getting excited, aren't you? And uh, I went over and sat down on the couch, and I finally got the courage to take a pull off it, and it tasted like cough syrup. I said, it's not a big deal. And I took a few more pulls, and I started to get that sensation in our body we get from booze, and started to feel pretty good. And I took a few more pulls, and eventually I started to get a smile on my face like I never had before. And, hit a little bit harder and eventually this smile wrapped all the way around my head. You know? <laughs> and that's the effect alcohol had on my life. And I didn't say it right then, but I definitely felt it. And that is I just planted a flag almost right then and said, this, this right here, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. It changed my life. It was a cataclysmic explosion in my life. It was, it was an apocalyptic moment, I meaning something that's been unveiled and revealed to you never experienced before in your life. That's what that first drink was like for me. And uh, I got as sick as I've ever been off alcohol that night. I said my first foxhole prayer or plea bargain prayer that night. I know I lied to Mama Long that night about what I was. I didn't drink the next day, the next week, or the next month. But this little juvenile delinquent wanted that lifestyle more than anything. And we didn't have any money, and, I, and it resulted to a life of crime and, and burglaries and petty crimes, and it landed me in a lot of trouble right off the bat. And I ended up in a boy's home. I ended up in, uh, going to a juvenile penitentiary. I quit school when I was 13. I left home when I was 15. I came to A for the first time in 1979 in the Adair County Detention Center. I just got released from Boonville Correctional Center. I was already had another charge waiting for me. They picked me up immediately, took me to this detention center and a couple guys from the street spot AA into this facility. I was a young punk juvenile, uh, but it was AA. And, and there's a really important piece, I think it's on page 105 of Bill Sees It. The title of that page, or at least halfway down, is titled Our Chief Responsibility. And what it says, and I'm paraphrasing, but it says that our chief responsibility is to deliver an adequate demonstration of Alcoholics Anonymous to the newcomer. And it means that as a member, as a, as a district, as a group, as an area, as a state convention. And so hopefully if you're brand new tonight, and we've seen a lot of people raise their hands to that, that this weekend is an adequate demonstration of what this life can be like. I know your speakers will give you an adequate demonstration of what this program can do for your life. I know their stories well. And it's a powerful demonstration of what AA can do. And there's lot, there, everybody's got that story if you've been here long enough. It's like I was this and now I'm that because of the grace of God. And it was an adequate demonstration, although I wasn't ready to accept it. So, the, so my parole officer, Lynn Vandoya, and the, and the, uh, and the uh, probation officer, and then the judge came in the prosecuting attorney, and they said, we're going to give you a plea bargain. You can either go back to Boonville Correctional Center for two and a half more years, or you can go to treatment for 30 days. Now, I quit school when I was 13, but I had enough math. <laughs> To know that 30 days was a hell of a lot shorter than two and a half years. So I'm going to treatment. And I went to treatment in 1980, called the Care Unit, Northeast Missouri. I was by far the youngest cat there, rural community, not, not a lot of people there, maybe 15 tops. I was far by far the youngest. And, and I just, I knew how to play the game. I went there to do my time. I'm going to do 30 days in the county. That's how I approached it. And, uh, but it was an adequate demonstration of alcoholics anonymous. And they took us to outside meetings. And they threw us on a van, like one of those oats buses. That's what I felt like. I could just see my little nose and face smashed up against the mirror, the window, as we drove to the rural AA meeting. Pathetic. And, uh, and we go to the meeting. And uh, this lady who looks like Mrs. Claus, Santa's wife, I mean, big white hair, big rosy cheeks, been sober forever. Her name was Millie. She meets us there, and, and, and uh, I come in, and she's, she treats me like gold. Man, she bought me an orange crush pop. I'll never forget it. Orange crush soda set me down, and there's only like 10 people in the meeting. 
and uh, they're going around. It's an old, dusty country town. And so there's, there's not a lot of people, so everybody talks. Well, it came my turn to talk, and I said, well, I'm here because the Department of Corrections said I had to be here. And I only got so many more days to go, and you will never see me again because I'm not like you people. And then this beautiful Santa Claus-looking protege turned on me. She grew horns, fangs, and a tail, and flames just shot out of her mouth. And she looked at me, she says, just keep drinking, you dumb little bastard. It's all going to happen to you. And she became my first resentment. But how it all goes for a circle is that many years later, I spoke at her 40th anniversary in her homeroom. That's the cool part about AA. But I was far. The Thomas boys picked me up from treatment. If the Thomas boys pick you up from treatment, Johnny and Tommy Thomas, it's not going to go well. They picked me up. And I'm, it's an Ozark Mountain Hillbilly. They picked us up in a pickup truck. We got in the back, 15 minutes in the truck. They're handing me a jug of jungle juice, whatever that was, Everclear, who knows what else. Some blotter acid with a Snoopy on it. And we go down to the Sheraton River to one of the best parties I've ever been to in my life. It was unbelievable. And in the highlight of the night is I took that coin that I just got for 30 days. And I walked down to the river with my buddies and I skipped it across the river and pounded my chest, made somebody hillbilly rebel yell like the turtle man who's from Kentucky. You know the turtle man? I made a yeah, 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 yeah. I made that rip, right? Something to that effect. Like I achieved something. Like I beat it. I beat. I beat. And that would be the last time I thought about not drinking for a long time. And that's alcoholism. So that, that leads me, so I talked about the delusion of inequality, but I want to talk about the next delusion. That's the delusion that I'm not alcoholic. And that delusion kills most of us. We toss around a word in AA called denial. It's a word you've only seen twice in a big book. Once in the spiritual appendix and once in Bill's story. And both times it's talking about denying a power greater than myself. The way our literature, the way our book describes alcoholism, and I believe it's accurate, is way past now. Yes, there's an element of denial in it, no question. And denial is, I know it's over there, I'm just not going to look at it. But delusion, which is how our illness is described, means that it's looking at me right in my eyeballs, and I can't see it for what it is. And that's why it's so deadly. And that delusion, that I'm not what all the evidence says I am, is why it kills most people that's got it. And so we're sitting here tonight, whether we're just days sober or we've been sober as long as Buddy Bob, doesn't matter. If we're sober, we better hang on to that. That's a tremendous gift because if it ever slips through our fingers, there's no guarantee we'll ever get it back. There's no guarantee we'll ever draw a sober breath if we'd ever pick up alcohol ever again. And so that delusion plagued me for a long time. My first real run-in with King Alcohol, I left home when I was 15. I hooked up with a drifter named Scotty. And, and uh, I don't want to get into the whole story, but I took off with this guy who was about 45. He was a tall hippie. I was 15. Wasn't even old enough to drive a car yet, but I, got, I, I take off with this guy. And we go to Texas. And I lived all over the South, Texas, Georgia, Tennessee, drinking, hell-raising, going from one place to the next, just doing my thing. And I end up in Ackworth, Georgia, nine, in, in, uh, and I'm 19 years old. And I'm going to describe to you what this delusion looks like in real life. And if you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous or you're sitting there trying to figure out why is this an illness? Why is it so cunning, baffling, powerful? Why is he saying it kills most people or destroys most people or most people will burn their life into the ground? It's because of this mindset. It's because of this alcoholic mind. And I want to describe that to you in my own terms. I was 19 years old. There was a great, great artist named Charlie Daniels. You know, I know Charlie. Charlie wrote a song. The devil went down to Georgia looking for a soul to steal. Well, he found me. Ackworth, Georgia. Red Barn Trailer Court. I lived in a beat up old rebel trailer court from the south that was nobody from Georgia lived in my trailer park. It was all rejects from the south. Some rejects from Kentucky, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia. How bad was it? I lived next door to three guys named Porkchop, Hollywood, and Screwdriver. <laughs> to give you a real indication how life was going. And I was a bar drinker. I was a saloonatic. I loved the saloons, right? I loved that stuff. I was a honky-tonker. I loved, I, loved, I loved country girls, girls in tight jeans, white T-tops. If they had cowboy boots, a cowboy hat, and if they had a four-wheel drive, God bless America. I was all over that. <laughs> loved that. 
And, uh, and I played drums, and I was in a lot of those places. I loved those places. The problem was I had a big mouth, especially if we were drinking whiskey. And it wasn't uncommon for somebody to want to punch you, you know, at least once before the night was out. And I was a blackout drinker on top of it. I was 19 years old. I woke up a Saturday morning in Ackworth, Georgia, wintertime, had my blue jeans on, had cowboy boots on, I had a red flannel shirt on, I had a brown vest on. I woke up in the middle of our trailer floor, no idea how I got there. I had a big tomato head, that's what we call a hangover in the south, a tomato head. Had a big one. And I, as I looked, I got up, I had blood all over me. I had blood over my hands, blood over my jacket. And I had no idea what had happened to me. To this day, I can't tell you what happened to you. I went into the bathroom figuring somebody just kicked the dog's not nasty out of me. And I couldn't find where I was bleeding. And as I got my clothes off, I realized somebody sliced me all the way around my arm and it stabbed me a couple times in my rib cage. And so what happened next is I went outside on the porch of that trailer. And it was the first time that I ever remember up to that point. I had a lot of consequences with King Alcohol, but it was the first time that I can ever remember honestly that I had any kind of personal concession or any kind of mumbling that I wanted to do something different than what I was doing in my life. But the problem is that there's nothing between you and whatever you're powerless over. And you're truly powerless over it. You're toast. As I sat on the front porch, I mumbled something like, man, I got to do something different than I'm doing, with tears coming out of my eyes. And it's just like, you know, the, the authors of our big book, they took an old English character, John Barleycorn, they personified King Alcohol, and it was just like King Alcohol was sitting right next to me with his arm around me, consoling me, and I call him the great compromiser, but this is how the, the, the discussion went. This is the exchange. I got to quit doing what I'm doing. And King Alcohol is like, you know what, kid, you're right. You do need to do something different. And you need to do it quick. But before you do anything drastic, walk in here and get your old army jacket, and let's walk up here to the magic market and get a pack of cigarettes and a quart of beer. And it sounded like the best advice of the day. And anybody on the outside looking in sees how insane that was. And I started my journey up to the liquor store. And, I, and that sense of ease and comfort came over me before I ever got there. I could almost skip to the liquor store. I was so excited. And I walk in, I get the quart of beer, I get the pack of smokes, I come out, I twist that top, make that noise we all love, you know, and that little spirit come out of that bottle. You know what I'm talking about, took a big old pull off it, made that face we always make. And that was the last time I thought about not drinking for a long time. And that's alcoholism. And that's the delusion. That somehow or another it's gonna be different. I hitchhiked to Marietta, Georgia, I got sewed up and the game was on. I came back to St. Louis in 1985, again, in the saloons, got arrested for a 40WI accident. A few weeks later, playing music over on the east side of St. Louis, in East St. Louis, Illinois, where all the rock and roll bars and, and strip clubs and all the darkness in the world you ever want after one o'clock is there. And I was over in East St. Louis, coming home with some bandmates. I'm in the backseat of the car, and uh, we get stopped on the highway. And uh, spotlight hits the car, pulls us over. And we're there forever. And uh, we thought it was the police, but it wasn't. It would end up being just a truck full of knuckleheads with a spotlight on their truck messing with us. <laughs> and they shut it off, and they peeled out and, you know, yelled some explicits at us. And, and it ended up being a high-speed chase back to St. Louis. And we were chasing them, and they were chasing us, and they were swerving at us, and we were swerving at them. But before it was all over with, they were in the fast lane going really fast. And they swerved that truck just a little too hard, and it shot it like a bottle rocket right over the embankment and it flipped countless times. And unfortunately, by the time it come to arrest, it destroyed your truck and killed everybody in that vehicle. And so when I got home from that accident, which is way after daylight, I was a crushed human being. It's like somebody just took out my soul and cut it in half. But there was nothing between me and King Alcohol. So literally within no time at all, I was already in the refrigerator, popping the top on a cheap Schaefer's beer, trying to just figure it out trying to drown the pain, only to get behind the car again a few weeks later and get arrested for a 50 WI, which is parole violations for me. I'm 21 going on 22, and I'm on my way back to the penitentiary. And it was in that cell in 1987 that I had my moment. George Strait uh, sang a song, I found Jesus on the jail room floor. That was my story, basically. I got on my knees and I said the most honest prayer I've ever said in my life. And it was simply three words. I don't think I said please if I'm transparent, but it was simply God help me. 
And from that moment to as I stand here tonight, I've never had it necessary to take another drink of alcohol. And I'm forever grateful for that. What was the difference between that prayer and all the other prayers I said? I said a lot of prayers in my lifetime. A lot of plea bargain and foxhole prayers. God, if you get me out of this, you know how it goes. I'll never do it again. Right? And if you're really alcoholic, you've got to add this to it. And this time, I really mean it, God. Because <laughs> you burnt that prayer into the ground, right? But the difference was, and I believe our literature shares the same thing, that God makes, doesn't make too hard a turns for those who honestly seek God. And I was honestly seeking. And I've tried to seek ever since, and it's changed my entire life. And that's the good news. And it's not just good news, it's the best news ever. I checked out of that. I bailed out of that facility. I was in a lot of trouble. I knew I needed to go to treatment. I didn't need an attorney to tell me that. Where did I go? I went all the way back to where I was at in 1980, where that adequate demonstration of AA was presented to me. That's the power of what I'm talking about, that adequate demonstration. I didn't go there to go to AA. I didn't go there to get a sponsor. I didn't go there to get in recovery. I went there because it was a safe place. And it was because I needed something to show the courts that I'm trying. I'm trying to take responsibility. And I went there and I got 12 stepped by a guy named Gary. And Gary was only about two and a half months sober. He wasn't there to be my sponsor. He wasn't there to work steps. He was just simply coming back in because he was full of passion, full of excitement, and wanted to pass the good stuff on. And he was just there, and he was my age now. And he came into my room, and he says, uh, and, and I'll never forget it, he had prison-issue glasses, a goatee. He had smoked his whole life. He had a smoker's voice, that gruffy voice. He said, my name's Gary. And he had a clipboard, and he says, and you're on the list. <laughs> and I said, the list for what? And he said, the list to go to, to an AA meeting tonight outside. I said, I'm not going to an AA meeting. <laughs> you don't want to go? I said, no, I don't want to go to an AA meeting. Thanks. And he left. And but he did something beautiful. A few minutes later, he came back and he just opened the door and he just stuck his head in. That's all he stuck in the door. And he says, do me a favor. I said, what's that? He goes, I want you to try really hard to smile and get it over with. And then he left. And I sit there and thought about it. I'm like, what the hell does that mean? Smile and get it over with. But I literally, within seconds, I had a willingness that I didn't have literally seconds before that. And next thing I know, I'm up on my feet. I'm scouring the halls looking for this guy. And I finally found him. I said, hey, man, are you still going to that meeting? He says, yeah, I'm still going. I said, well, that's good. He says, why is that good? I said, because I want to go with you. He goes, man, that's great. I said, why is that great? He says, because you're the only one I could get to go. <laughs> right? So now I knew I sucked into something. I'm like, what? What did I just read? And so we go down, little two-story treatment center. We go down to the parking lot, and we're walking across, and there it is, the alcoholic newcomer car. No exaggeration, 1970 pea green Plymouth Duster. We could pass a basket in just this section here and pay for the car. Got in it, no floorboards. I mean, the floorboards are rusted out. He's got, he's got floor mats, but no floorboards. No exhaust, trash everywhere, hot wired stereo, cheap RCA box speakers take up the whole back seat. Trash everywhere. Just, it was pathetic. And, he and we're in a small little rural town. You got plenty of them here in this area. And he cranks it up, and now we're going down to where all the churches are at because that's where all the A meetings are at. So we're going through town. And carbon monoxide is coming through the floorboards. And you're trying not to die from asphyxiation. And he's got a smile that wraps around his head because he's taking the new guy. He's got the new guy. He's going to show up. He's got, I scored. I got points. I'm, look at me. And so on the way there, he starts giving me the A pitch, trying to convince me how great his life is after two and a half months ago. Now that he's not drinking anymore. And I think I invented the word right there. I'm like, dude, I hate to break it to you, but it looks like your life sucks to me. <laughs> and alcoholics, I, I think we're just gifted with it when we finally surrender. We just, we had this wit, and he says, yeah, well, tell me about your car, Harold. Tell me about <laughs> Oh, that's right, you don't have a car. And, and what about this trial you got going? I heard that's not going to go, but well, you know, you started digging that back. But we get to the meeting. We get to the meeting, and he, and he says, uh, we're going to go in this meeting, and if they call on you, let's hope they don't, but man, if they call on you, all I want you to do is say your name is Harold, and you're an alcoholic. Don't add anything to it. We know you could add a lot of things to it, but when you say alcoholic, we, that's got a broad definition, man. It covers a lot of ground. Probably means you smoke some of this and sniff some of that and huff some of that. 
and you're from the Ozark Mountains, you probably slept with a few farm animals too, you know? It's big. It's big. All right? So I've been hurled alcoholic ever since. But I went to that meeting, and I happened to sit next to a guy like my friend Bob over here. And I said, how long do you got to go to these meetings? He says, until you want to. I said, well, that's going to be a hell of a long time. I don't want to do so I went. And an important part of that story is, I just want you to hear it. it. Just remember that it was Ebby that reached out to Bill. And it was Bill that reached out to Bob. And it was Gary that reached out to Harold. And it's really important because in today's times, because of the popularity of AA and treatments everywhere, it's really easy for AA to get watered down. And what happens is we hand around a phone list or a newcomer's packet and we have all the guys sign it or all the ladies sign it and then we hand it to somebody. We hand it to Pudge, say, Pudge, if you want what we got, call us. And they're not calling. Very few people will call. Stride through AA. Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Can I take your order? It's just not, I would have never got here on that. And that persistent guy, Gary, kept calling me when I went back to St. Louis. Did you go to A? No, I didn't go to A. Why not? I don't know why I didn't. I was consumed with the trial. But I didn't go to A. And he would say things like, Harold, your life depends on you going to A. I knew that was true. I just didn't want it to be. But I knew it was true. And it took me a while to go to A. I was that terrified to go to A. I was terrified to leave the old life. And I finally got the courage to go. And I went to a meeting. Unfortunately, I came in, and if you're new, I hope you hear what I'm going to say. My first three years of recovery are as much about what not to do as it is to do. <laughs> and I'm serious. Lean into this for a minute. I came into Alcoholics Anonymous with the same self-propulsion, the same, same extremely self-centered attitude I had my whole life. I'm going to do what I want, when I want, how I want, the way I want, and if you don't like it, too bad for you. Because that's how I roll. I don't want a sponsor. I've had a probation and pro officer tell me what to do since I was 11. I still got one, matter of fact. So I'm not interested in anybody else having say-so in my life. So I'm just going to do my deal. I'll look at the steps. They're not going to change my life. Why? Because I had too much materialism, individualism, consumerism, secularism in my life. Call me crazy? I think I could be a little bit more spiritual if I had a few hundred dollars in my pocket. <laughs> and a legal driver's license. And a car that wasn't held together by bumper stickers. Call me nuts, but that was my mindset. So I avoided all that. I was on step none. For the, first, for the first three years. If you were at the last international conference, the, the person who spoke on Friday night said this. I'll never forget it. They said, I did everything right in AA but 12 things. <laughs> and I about fell on the floor. I'm like, preach, because that's my story. But I hung in there. I grinded out. I, had a, I did all the fellowship stuff. I had a sober band, awesome band. Played all over the Midwest and played a lot of sober conferences. Had a blast. Played on sober softball teams. Did all the stuff. But you can only run on self propulsion You can only run on living on fellowship sobriety for so long because you have to be transformed. This, this channel that's, you know, if you want to call it a channel between us and our higher power, the, the world of the spirit, as Step Tim would call it, this channel has been completely blocked our whole life. And it started long before we ever drank. Through all the trauma and the drama, and some of you suffered some massive sexual abuse and physical abuse and mental abuse and neglect and go on down, all the resentments, all the fears, all the junk, all the crimes, all the secrets, all the crap that's stuck in our channel. That's got to get unclogged or you're not going to stay here. You can get excited about A, you can even get a little spiritually intoxicated by it, but you're not going to stay here. And I wasn't doing anything to unclog the channel. And that, that grace period, if you would, was about to expire. And I finally humbled myself to ask a guy to sponsor me. His name is Roy. I said, Roy, will you sponsor me? He said, yeah, come over. He knew me the whole time. He said, Harold, you've been here for almost three years. Tell me about your life. I said, I'll tell you about my life. Roy, I'm 25 years old. I live in the basement of a house right up the road from you. I don't have an education. I don't have a GED. I got a criminal record. I don't know if I'll ever drive again. I got a piece of crap car held together by eight bumper stickers that I can't legally drive, but I do anyway. My life sucks every which way you take it. Take the word sucks, capitalize it, highlight it, italicize it, make a neon sign out of it. That's where my life's at. And he listened to it very gracefully. He goes, Harold, I hear everything you're saying. And there's no doubt that you've been dealt a pretty tough hand in your life. But I hope you're going to hear what I'm going to say. And what he said that day changed my life. And it's as true as that night as it is as I sit here with you tonight. He said, Harold, everything you've got going on right now in your life, every single thing you've got going on, you've attracted to you by the person that you've become. And the day you're man enough to own that, 
is today you're on your way to some real truth, but until you can own it, this little vicious cycle you're on, you're going to drink again. I know you don't think so because the flicker's still burning in your heart, but you won't. But I'm telling you, that light's going to go out, and eventually you'll drink again. Or are you going to do what my dad did? My dad was an alcoholic who could never get sober, and my dad took his life. That's how my dad quit drinking. So you're going to do one or two things, man. You're either going to grow or you're going to go. And the million-dollar question is, what do you want to do? And I knew that he's going to say, let's work the steps. And, and with every inch of my fiber, I could tell you how it works by heart. I could tell you the preamble by heart. But I just didn't believe it would change my life. That's part of the delusion. You know, it just ate me up. But, but I was desperate. I finally come to the end of myself. And friends, that's where you got to get to. For some of you, it's the day you put down the bottle. You're there. But for many of you, you're not. You're like me. You just hang on. You, you're under this delusion that king alcohol is a problem. And when I put down the booze, my life will somehow explode into change. But it's so much deeper than that. You know, and we got to get this channel unclogged. And I had done nothing to do that. And I didn't know that. But I started this journey, and I come to the end of myself, and I finally started taking actions that I didn't believe would do anything for my life, and it changed my entire life. And I'm telling you, wherever you're at in your current circumstances, if that's you, the good news is it will for you too. But you have to come all the way in, sit all the way down, and you've got to stay. And staying is the hard part, friends. It's the hardest part of this deal is to stay the course and do the work. God will move mountains, but he's going to ask you to bring a shovel. You've know, you got to participate in your own recovery. And up to that point, I really wasn't doing a whole lot. But we started this journey, and it changed my life. It brought me up against the next delusion. Delusion number one is the delusion of inequality. Delusion number two, I'm not alcoholic. Delusion number three is I could finally confess to you that I am alcoholic, but it's not my fault. <laughs> now, I wouldn't say it that way because that would be pathetic, right? But, but as our four-step would say, the conclude that others is wrong is about as far as most of us ever got. But that victimization, friends, is a killer. And I guarantee there's people sitting here tonight that are stuck in that. I had a blameless as long as Highway 64 for my life, and very justified. I mean, by the time, before, I was 13, before I was 15 years old, I suffered sexual abuse, verb, you know, physical abuse, verbal, you just name it. I had a justified list why my life was in the condition that it was. But you got to throw it away. And here's the problem. If you don't, if you suffer from victimization, because that's what it is, you'll drink yourself to death, and it's not your fault. You'll blow your lungs, your veins out, you'll blow your lungs out, you'll blow your nostrils out, man, you'll blow your brains out. And it's not your fault. You'll sit in a 9 by 7 or 10 by 6 jail cell for the rest of your life, and it's not your fault. That's got to go, and 4 through 9 did that for me. Finally got to toss that card that I've been hanging on with dear life, with a death grip. Finally tossed it, and it changed my life. My sponsor's got a great quote. He says, my sponsor, most of my sobriety was Tom I from... North Carolina, some of you knew Tom personally or you heard his CDs. He died back in September 2nd, but he was my sponsor for most of my sobriety. But Tom had a great quote, and this is how the quote went. He said, when preparation meets opportunity and God does introduction, great things will happen in your life. The problem was I wasn't prepared for the opportunities early on in my recovery, but the steps prepared me for those opportunities. And here's the cool part about that. When that happens, spiritual mathematics kick in. And 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 4 anymore. And the impossible becomes possible. And if you're new and stuck in that victimization, I hope you hear that tonight. It brought me right up against the next delusion, the delusion of impossibility. That I could come to the room to say, my name's Harold, I'm an alcoholic. And okay, and I'll take full responsibility for my life. But let's just be real with each other. I broke too many hearts. I burnt too many bridges. There's little hope my life's ever going to really amount to anything, so why even try? And you open up the curtains, and you look out in the landscape, and you see Mount Wreckage back there. It looks like Mount Everest. That's my life. That's my salvage yard. It looks like an impossible task. And the older you are when you get here, the bigger that mountain is because of the time value of time. Time has passed me by. It's impossible for my life ever to admit. But what I'm telling you, not only in my own life, but I, with countless alcoholics, I've watched the impossible become possible so many times. My sponsor, Tom, used to say, when God's got work for you to do, the walls come down. And it's true. And, but that delusion is so powerful. And when it gets into your DNA, when it gets into your blood system, when it gets into your soul, your soul being made up of your mind, your will, and your emotions, but, you know, it's a real soul sickness, that when that delusion gets into your mind, it fills it with despair. When you've got despair in your life, guess what you do? You quit. That's why we've got a recidivism rate of 60% in our prison system. 
people equipped for they ever get out. That's why you got people who cycle through treatment centers and mental institutions and halfway houses and skid row missions. Been there dozens of times. There's some of you have been here dozens of times. Because you go in with no hope and you leave with this delusion that it's really never going to be any different than what it is. And it's a powerful delusion. And it, but it is a delusion. Because if you truly come here and you sit all the way down and you just follow the sponsorship's lead and you follow, you allow people to get into your life. It's like you come here and it's like you got a clear bag and this is my life. It's a thousand piece puzzle. And you're holding it and it's, it's all apart and there's pieces missing. And you come here and you hold it up and you look at people and you say, this is my life. Tell me how this is going to get better. But if you stay, they pull up the tables and they say, just dump it out. And let's find out. And then you dump the puzzle pieces out. Not only one or two people, the next thing you know, the table's surrounded by people putting pieces together. And you sit there and watch. The next thing you know, you've got a mosaic. And the pieces that are missing, God's sovereign hand, something that comes over that and just fills in the gaps. And you've got this beautiful, incredible, impossible life. And it's here for every single person. But that delusion can definitely keep you from that. The next delusion is delusion of spiritual disqualification. It's a delusion that I suffer from because of all the twisted perceptions I had about God, because of, about religion, so forth. I'm not going to go here and unpack all that. I'm just telling you I had a lot of twisted ideas about God and how it wasn't going to work for a guy like me. If you broke the hearts I broke, you did the things I did, flat evil, some of the stuff, there's no way you're ever going to be in the grace of a higher power, a loving God, forgiven, and a chance to recreate your life. There's no chance of that. And, and that's delusional at best. And if you're struggling with that today, or even if you can claim yourself to be atheist, agnostic, or irreligious, I don't care, one of the nuns, if you would, if you're in that space, here's what I just challenge you to do. I challenge you to lean into the 12 steps, to thoroughly and honestly go on that journey with a sponsor. And what I can promise you will happen is God will meet you on the other side of that. And I just encourage you to do that. Don't let that spiritual disqualification get in your way. I was in a treatment center not long ago, and... We are just talking about step two back in February, and a kid, young man, 20 years old, probably says, i got a question for you. What if you don't believe in God? I said, it's a great question. Can I answer it with a question? He said, yes. I said, what if God believes in you? Wrestle with that question, and then we can have a conversation. But I'm just telling you, this power that we're talking about in these rooms believes in you. Trust me, it does, and it's a game changer. The last delusion, and I'll wrap up with this, is this delusion that there's no real purpose for my life. We do all this work, and for what? But the opportunities come. I, got, I had so many breaks. I can't even begin to tell you all the breaks I got in my life. So many breaks. I wasn't prepared for them in the beginning, but once I started getting going, I got going, and my mom who I reconciled with after three years. It took me three years to finally get in good graces with my mother. She says, Harold, I believe you matured to a point that I want to invite you to come into this business. Now, it wasn't her business, it was a big national company. And I said, well, Mom, I, I, that's great, and I'm flattered that you would want me to do that, but I'm not qualified to do that. There's no way they're going to hire me. She goes, you let, why don't you let me worry about that? I just want you to say, yes, you're willing to do this. And I said, okay, if they'll let me in. I didn't even qualify to take out the trash. And so I went to this interview with this vice president of this company, and he sat me down in the chair. I had to borrow a tie from the guy next door. I didn't even own a tie. And his name was Tony. He worked at the brewery, so he didn't have ties. He had a clip-on tie <laughs> that came down to about right here. <laughs> Seriously. And I wore that to this interview with this high executive. It looked pathetic. But he looked at me in my eyes, and he stood there over me. I felt this delusion of inequality was just eating me alive. I just wanted to cut and run. And he says, Harold, the only reason you're here is because of your mother. It's the only reason you're here. There's no, there's nothing, there's no reason why I should hire you outside of your mother. But if I take a chance, I'm not saying that I will, but if I decide to take a chance, you're going to do three things, or you're going to do three things well. You're going to work hard, you're going to work smart, and you're going to work honest. And if you don't do one of those three things, you will not work here. Are you clear on that? I said, yes, sir. Get out of here. And they gave me a chance, and I lived into that and, and became highly successful in that career. But in my 30s, I reached, in my mid-30s, I reached a plateau. I couldn't go any further, so I had to go. I was up against this education. I didn't even have a GED. And my sponsor says, just go, 
go take the GED. I said, look, I tried twice while I was incarcerated. I quit school when I was 13. I can't pass the GED. He says, then humble yourself and go to GED classes. And I'm already highly successful, got a family, got kids. And I'm like, you want me to go to GED classes? And I said, yeah, at the community college. So I signed up for 16 weeks. And I went there right after class. I already had some gray hair going on. I walk in with my suit and tie. And they thought I was the instructor. <laughs> I said, I'm not the instructor. I'm one, I sat down, and I didn't, I didn't want to look at any of them. Because back in the day, when I took that thumbtack out of my ear and pierced my ear, that was a big deal where I was from in the country to walk around with an earring back in those times. Got me in a few scrapes, I can promise you. Now, fast forward all these years later, these guys were all tatted out, and they had so many piercings, they looked like they fell down the nut and bolt section at Lowe's, right? <laughs> I mean, they had all kinds of stuff going on. So it was unbelievable. I was like, holy smokes. And, and uh, I'm sitting next to this guy where, where my buddy's sitting, and this kid's name was Ronnie. And Ronnie's sitting there with a leather jacket, spiked wristbands, tatted out, shade head, mohawk, 20 different colors, and, he's, and he looks like he belongs in a museum. I mean, he's, he's just like a piece of art. You cannot help but look at him. And, he, and the teacher's not even there yet. And he catches me looking at him. He jumps bad on me right in front of this class. He says, what are you looking at, old man? <laughs> well, I told you how quick we are. I said, well, Robbie, if you want to know the truth, I made love to a parrot one time. <laughs> and I'm wondering if you might be one of my kids, man. <laughs> He laughed, and 16 weeks later, Robbie was sitting right where Nick's at. Dion was sitting here. We were best buds. Graduated with honors. A few weeks later, a few, a few months later, years later, I should say, I walked across the stage with a bachelor's degree from the college, and I sent my mom a bumper sticker that said, hey, your kid made the honor roll. It was a big joke in my head. <laughs> But I eventually walked across the stage with a master's degree in business, and I wrote my thesis on starting a business from scratch and selling it, and I've not been able to do that not once, twice, but I'm in right in the process of doing it a third time as we speak. I was able to walk across the stage and eventually get another master's degree. What I'm telling you is the impossible becomes possible all the time. But we gotta clear this channel, and we really gotta get down and do the work. I told you about those amends. I want to share a couple of those, and I want to go back to this purpose and close. When I sponsor had me do my amends, I did them on three by five index cards. And I had a giant stack. And he said, I want a rubber band around them. I want them sitting on your desk where you see them every single day. So they pull on you like a magnet until you get them done. And I got down to where I only had a handful left. I'm 12 years sober by this time. And one of those guys on my list was my Uncle Bob, my dad's brother. And he was adamant I put this guy on my list. And he says, put him down. I said, why do I got to put this guy down? He goes, because he's your uncle. I said, yeah, so what? I said, I've never done anything to this guy. I only saw the guy once when I was like five or six years old, man. Why do I got to put him on a list? He goes, he's part of your family. Have you ever called a guy? I said, no. You ever sent him a Christmas card? I said, no. But he's the adult. I'm the kid. If he wanted something to do with me, he would have reached out to me. This is his delusion. It, a long time ago, he says, put him on your list. Every time he came up, he went to the back. And I'm down to just a few left, and we're in the prison doing a workshop on the 12 steps, and we're talking about step nine one night, and I mentioned my Uncle Bob, and this member on the inside called me out. He says, uh, Harold, when are you going to just suck it up and do it? <laughs> and I didn't have a comeback. I, on the way home, I was angry about it, but I knew he was right. And I got on the computer the next day, and I Googled Robert and Betty Long. Buffalo, Missouri popped up. I said, that's got to be my Uncle Bob and my Aunt Betty. It's got to be them. That's right geographically to where they're at. So I sent a card, told them what was going on while I was reaching out to them. Just within days, I got a card back from them. They were absolutely ecstatic to hear from me. They had no idea what happened to me. They knew I was in a lot of trouble. They didn't even know if I was still alive. And then my Aunt Betty called me. And she said, I just want to make sure you got that card. I said, I got that card. I said, and I, said I need to come and see you. And I said, because this amends process that we do in recovery, I really need to see you eyeball to eyeball. And she goes, well, son, we would love to see you. I'm not sure about all this amends stuff, but we would love to see you. Please come. So it wasn't that long after that, I drove to Buffalo, three and a half hours from St. Louis, in a little town of about 3,300 people. And, and there's a great promise. We talk about the 12 promises. But there's a great promise in the big book, and it says that nine times out of 10, the unexpected is going to happen. 
And I'm telling you, this is the truth, uh, that that's a true statement. So I knew that. I had done enough amends in my own life and responses to know that was true. And I pull into Buffalo, Missouri, and I pull down Locust Street, and we pull up into the driveway, and there's, it's a small single ranch house, four-car driveway, one spot open, three cars, and then there's cars up and down the street on this little back road street. I thought, damn, these people got a lot of cars for being so old. <laughs> and I get out, and it's sunny, it's one o'clock, and my Aunt Betty comes to the front porch. She's barely five foot tall, country girl, country Ozark girl. Comes out with a big smile on her face, holding the door open, reporting to whoever's behind her. And she looks at me with a big grin and says, well, he looks like a long. <laughs> and I knew I had the right house. I was absolutely a nervous wreck. But I'll never forget what happened next. As I walked up to the front porch and my Uncle Bob come out, my dad's brother. And he stuck his hand out. And he squeezed my hand. He says, welcome home, son. I want you to come inside. I got some people I want you to meet. And I walked inside, and every one of his kids, grandkids, and many cousins and other friends, probably 35, 40 people were there to welcome me back into their life. And that, my friends, there was two dynamic forces going on. One was how powerful and how awesome this fellowship is. The other two is how this extremely self-centered human being who suffers from this delusion allowed that delusion, allowed my own twisted profession and my own self-centeredness to rob me of that relationship all those years because it was there the entire time time. It was. That mama, Mama Long, one I reconciled with, greatest winner of my life, 2013. I said, Mom, it's Mother's Day. Yeah. On Sunday, I said, I want you to come to church with me. I'm going to give the message that day. And then we'll go to brunch for Mother's Day. She goes, okay. She's Catholic. I'm in a Protestant church. She goes, I'm not sure about all that, but I'll go with you. And we go, and she sits right where Pudge is at, front row. And my, the senior pastor comes out. His name is Pastor Keith. And he has two plants. I didn't know this, any of this was going. He goes, it's Mother's Day, and I got two plants to give out today. One is to a lady who has been around our church since Moses parted the Red Sea. Everybody applies. <laughs> they give her the plant. And then one is to Mama Long. Caught me off guard. Caught her off guard. And he walks down. He says, Mama, I want to give you this plant, and we want to thank you for everything you've poured into this kid's life because he's a huge blessing to us, and he's a huge blessing to so many people. So thank you. And they hand her the plant, and then they hand her the microphone. My mom's like, And this is exactly what my mom said. She said, don't thank me for that boy's life. Thank Alcoholics Anonymous. And she handed the phone right back to Mike. And I said, thanks, Mom. You just blew my anonymity in front of me. <laughs> But that's what this thing's about, right? This, this is it. My mom died in 2015. She got cancer, got diagnosed with small cell cancer, didn't make it out of the hospital, lived eight days. But when I sat in that hospital room and all of us around, my kids, her kids, all of them around, poured around this my mother, and I looked around the room, I didn't know anybody nothing. I was good with everybody and had been for years. What an amazing life. Impossible becomes possible here, friends. And, uh, and I did that, and, uh, and she, the, the night before she died, I put earphones on her head, little foam earphones, and she woke up for the last time, and she had death in her eyes. And she was startled, and I said, Mom, don't worry about it. I just said, I'm putting on some Frank Sinatra. She loved Frank Sinatra. I said, I just put on a little Frank Sinatra for you. My mother said her last words, everybody needs a little blue eyes. <laughs> so I got a huge picture of my, uh, Frank Sinatra in my house with that little quote in the corner that says, everybody needs a little blue eyes. Greatest winter of my life. And my family asked me to do the eulogy at her funeral. That's a long way from that spot to that spot. I want to close with this. Two most important things I do in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was given this when I started working the steps, 1990. I've been sober three years. My sponsor said this to me. I hope you hear this because this is what changed my life ultimately. He said, Harold, if you do these two things and you do them well the rest of your life, you'll have a storybook life. Number one, you always have a new guy you're working with. If you don't have a new guy, you stop what you're doing, you get out your rods, you get out your bait, and you go fish where there's fish, and there's plenty of fishing holes right here in Louisville, I can promise you. And I know some pretty good fishermen, so if you're struggling catching fish, I know some of them here take you to those places. But you always have a new guy. And then you go somewhere once a week where you don't want to end up. And so that started for me in a Skid Row mission. It's called Harbor Light, Salvation Army Harbor Light, still in St. Louis on Washington Street, same place, Skid Row Mission. Uh, and then a treatment center, low bottom treatment center all together.
broken place. I went there every Thursday and Saturday for three years. And it was the hardest AA I ever done in my life, but it was the best AA I ever did in my life. The best AA I ever did in my life. And uh, it shaped me. In 1993, I got a phone call. Guy says, hey, man, would you come out to this prison and give a talk? And I started laughing. I said, dude, do you know who you're talking to? He goes, yeah. And I said, they're not going to let me come into the prison, man. He goes, man, I got a lot of pull out here, and you've been on paper for a while. I'm pretty sure I can get you in. And I said, let me just say this. I made a pack a long time ago that I ain't ever, <laughs> never, for you or anybody else going on that side of the fence ever again in my life. And he laughed, and he said, well, why don't you run that by your sponsor and call it that. <laughs> so long story short, I've been a volunteer in corrections in a maximum security prison setting since 1993. And that's what I do every week. And what I'll, what I'll say to that is this, is, is it's, I got so many stories I could share with that. Your, your speaker tomorrow night, Lyle, who's a powerful story, but we, we do a lot of stuff outside of fellowship. We hunt and do different things together. And, you know, last time he was up in October, we went into a maximum security prison where Lyle could share his story. This is what we do. I'll share this story in closing. This is the power of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is what this thing is all about. In 1996, I had an inmate come in. His name was Brent. Brent had two life sentences, second degree murder for murdering his father. That's how far resentment and alcoholism can take you. And he had a second degree, or he had an armed criminal action. Came into AA in 1996 with his fingers crossed. Why? Because that's how we come into AA. And, and offenders, whether they're in a treatment center, halfway house, or they're sitting here this weekend brand new, guess what they do? They listen with their eyes, and they think with their feelings. They listen with their eyes, and they think with their feelings. And so he watched to see what this was all about, if we were who we said we were. But eventually he got into our 12-step study group, and he started to work his steps. He had been in prison for 10 years to this point, two life sentences. His mom quit coming to see him, his wife divorced him, his grandma quit coming to see him because of the person that he become even behind the fences. But as he started to work the steps, the impossible became possible. Two plus did, two, four didn't, two plus two didn't equal four anymore, and the walls come down. And eventually his mom came back and see him, and eventually his, his uh, grandma came back to see him, got on the visiting list, and eventually his wife called and said, hey, I want to come and see you. He thought, what's up with that? And she said, your parents said you made some real changes, your mom and I'm, I want to come and see, and they end up renewing their vows and getting remarried. Not knowing if he'd ever get out of prison. But in 2006, he walked in my prison group with a smile that wrapped around his head. He says, you're never going to guess what happened. I said, brother, I come here every week with holy anticipation, knowing God's going to do something awesome. He says, I'm going home in 2008. And he got a 2008 outdate. So 2008, I said, when you get out, you call me every day till I tell you not to. And uh, he called me on the way out of prison. I'll never forget the phone call. He says, hey, man, I'm out. And I'm on this thing called a cell phone. <laughs> and I said, yes, brother, I got one too. I'm on it right now. And I said, go home, enjoy your family, call me in the morning. He called me the next morning, friends. I'll never forget this phone call until I die. He called me the next morning. He says, man, you're going to never guess what I've been doing all morning. I said, well, you haven't been with your wife for 21 years. I can know what you've been doing all morning. <laughs> he started laughing. He goes, no, I'm not talking about that. I said, what are you talking about? He says, man, I'm opening gifts. I said, you're opening gifts? I said, like what, welcome home gifts? He goes, no, man. I'm opening Father's Day gifts, birthday gifts, and Christmas gifts since 1996 when he started this journey in recovery. He says, you'll never guess what I got for Christmas in 97. <laughs> I said, what did you get? He goes, I got a Miami's Dolphin jacket. Never been to a Miami's Dolphin game. I don't know why he liked the Dolphins, but he did. And this is the spiritual mathematics of AA. He says, well, I said, I got four tickets to give you to go see the Dolphins play the Rams. This is when Rams are still in St. Louis in four weeks. He said, that's amazing. Who am I going to take? I said, you take whoever you want. He says, well, you go. I said, but you know I'll go. He said, well, I'll take you. We'll take Big Book Bob, who had life in 45, and we'll take Gary, who had life in 20. All three of these guys started the steps in, my, in that group in 1996. The walls came down, two plus two to four, and they were out. We went and ate pancakes. We went to the game. We had the time of our life. At halftime, the lady sitting behind us says, she tapped us on the shoulder. She goes, hey. And I said, yeah. She goes, I've been watching you guys. I said, yeah. 
She goes, you guys are having a lot of fun. I said, yes, ma'am, we are. And she goes, you guys aren't even drinking. <laughs> I said, I know. And she, so, she said, well, it's a good thing. And I said, why is that? She goes, because the way you were all carrying on, you'd probably end up in prison or something. <laughs> So that's a great observation. <laughs> so I say this, and I'll sit down. On page 152, it says this. The, the, the A member asks the fellowship a question. Here's the question. Do you have a sufficient substitute for king alcohol? And the book responds with yes, and it's vastly more than that. It's a fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous. But the word fellowship, if you look at it, is in the verb form. It's not in the noun means you got to participate in your own recovery. But if you come into this thing and get your channel uncleared, that the most satisfactory years of your existence lie ahead of you, that you will make lifelong friends, which I can attest to you right here, right now. Hundreds, at least a hundred right here in your own town that are lifelong friends of mine. And that your imagination is going to get fired. But this is what it says, and this is the most beautiful part. And I hope you hear it. You're going to have the privilege, and I'm paraphrasing, you're going to have the privilege to walk shoulder to shoulder with other people and help them rediscover life. And if you do that long enough, you will know what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, I couldn't love anything when I got here, but today I can. It's the greatest thing, gift that we have is that gift of love. You love me and I'm, I'm able to love you in return today. And it's, it's, I can't tell you how it's made a difference in how my life's turned out. So thank you from the bottom of my heart, Louisville, for letting me come to your town. Thank you for your demonstration, and thank you for your life. That's all I got.